We have been reading in Ephesians about church unity, about closeness between all of us and and, uh, sharing our struggles, sharing our trials, sharing our joys. And so I want to share with you this morning one of my kind of persistent struggles in my life and a source of some shame. And that is uh, my weird feet. My feet are really wide. I mean, you guys, they're wider than you're thinking. Wide feet, they're sometimes called double E wide when you're at a shoe store. Mine are four E. E, 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 E. Which is fitting because when people see my feet, they're like, E, those are weird feet. Now, these feet are not just oddly wide, but as a result, I never can find shoes that quite fit me. And my feet have been kind of crushed by regular shoes and my smallest toe on both sides. If I was one of the, aren't you glad I'm not one of those like PowerPoint preachers and you were looking at a slideshow right now? Maybe your imagination's worse. They're like crushed in. They're not, they're barely even toes anymore. And then the worst part is just from the rubbing and the chafing and all the ill-fitting shoes, I have calluses you would never believe on the side of my foot and on the heel of my foot. And sometimes my wife makes fun of me for this. It, oh, she does. She'll walk up when I'm maybe just laying there, sitting there with no shoes on, no socks on, and she'll tap at, poke at the calluses, and she'll say, can you even feel that? And I say, no, and I laugh along, and I push all the pain down deeper. Because she's hit on an actual fear of mine, which is that I shared my fear of heights last week. I'm afraid I'm going to fall from a height. I'm going to land uh, on my back. They're going to come. The EMTs are going to you know, strap me down to a backboard, bring me to the hospital, do that thing that you see in movies where the doctor takes a pin and pokes a foot and looks for some response, and they're not going to see any response, even though my back is fine because they're poking into areas of my foot that are completely so. And imagine how happy, how full of hope for once, vis-a-vis my feet, I was when Amazon somehow knew enough about me to show me an ad for extra strength callus remover gel and there was a picture of a foot that looked maybe even worse than mine as the before picture and then this beautiful soft foot as the after and i immediately bought it and then i began to read about it after i bought it and i saw that there were lots and lots of warnings uh you can't let it touch your skin it can only touch the calluses you have to wear uh, gloves when you apply it and it said like four times do not leave it on more than seven to eight minutes. That is the maximum. And then you like take a pumice stone and you go nuts on it. And uh, I started reading the reviews. It was mostly positive reviews. I thought that's good. And then there were some one stars that said, don't do what I did. Don't put it on and leave it all night. There are people who <laughs> they got all blistered and, and, and uh, ruined in their feet because they thought to themselves, that's regular feet, but mine are so calloused Seven to eight minutes is nothing. More like seven to eight hours. And they put it on and then just went to bed. Calluses are a source of frustration for me. But that's just it. It's just annoying. Aaron makes fun of me. Okay, I can take it. I'm a big guy. But in the scriptures today, we see Paul talking about a far more serious callus. And that is calloused hearts. Hearts that are unfeeling that can be pricked with a pin, or a conscience that can be pricked, and there's no response, because such a thick callus has formed. And here we see Paul discussing further what it should look like to walk in Jesus, 
having attained the maturity he talked about last week. You see, he's going to continue in now for the rest of the book, the kind of practical application section, having laid the theological groundwork. And we saw in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There's this maturity then that he lays out that we saw last week. It's a, it's a maturity that consists in two things, unity and the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And we think, okay, that is the kind of maturity we want, but here we see that that kind of maturity must also be accompanied by godly living. The fruit and proof of the maturity, or the maturity is simply not there. We've all known someone, especially maybe in high school, who could sound really mature, right? If you wanted to go do something crazy, you're like, hey, he can talk to parents. Why doesn't he explain what we're going to do? And he would be all slick and grown up sounding. And that was always the least mature guy in the group. He'd be like, all right, I convinced your parents. Where are the M80s? Let's go. But, you know, we see this in the church as well. We see this spiritually. In fact, we often will find people who seem to have such deep knowledge of the, the Son of God so as to have written theological tomes galore and, and people who have furthered theology so that people training to be ministers and missionaries all read their work and say, wow, this is brilliant. What insight into the scriptures. And then you look at their life and say, but the godly living wasn't there. For me, one of those people is Karl Barth. He was a German theologian. I read his church dogmatics. I, I, I devoured them in seminary. A lot of what I believe about Jesus, I've got gained insight from these writings. He wrote in German, and he wrote with more footnote than note-note, and, and, and that's my kind of thing. And, and yet, when you look at his life, even for all the good he did for the church, even for all of the insight he seemed to have into the Scriptures and the person of Christ, his entire career, he was having an affair with his assistant, more or less openly, even bringing her to come and live in his home. And these, these uh, letters came out in 2017 that he had written to her, and you see him trying to use his theological method to justify his affair with her. And then when it's clear that's not working, he resorts to the whole, well, if I love you and you love me, then it can't be wrong which ironically is one of the greatest minds in Western history, stealing a line from every 16-year-old scuzzball boy on a date. That's not maturity. Maturity has to be also observable in the life of the individual. So walk worthy, he said in verse 1. And then here in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, so he's talking an awful lot about our walk. If you have the NIV, it probably says live a life rather than walk. That's all right, because the word walk, peripateo, it means just to walk around. And it's kind of a code word for going about your life. Not just on Sunday morning, not just when you're reading the Bible or feeling super spiritual, but as you're walking around, as you're doing your life, walk worthy. And do not walk as the Gentiles do. Which might seem an odd thing to say to people who we've established are Gentiles. He says to these Gentiles, no longer live as the Gentiles. No longer walk as the Gentiles. What then? Should they become Jews? No, we've already established that's not what should happen at the Jerusalem Council. If you're, if you're a Jew who comes to Jesus, that's great. If you're a Gentile who comes to Jesus, you don't need to first become a Jew in order to do it. That was established firmly. No, the, the controlling theme of Ephesians is that God has taken these two people, Jews and Gentiles, and made of them 
a third, a different people. A people who are called to come out from the darkness of the world so that they no longer live by the world's standards. And this, this Gentile stuff really starts to percolate up to the surface here. You know, a few of us have been meeting each week uh, for a while now to study the book of Romans. And as we've done that, it's been crazy how frequently the, the fact that he's writing to Jews comes to the surface, just jumps off the page. In every single chapter, you're like, oh yeah, he's writing to Jews. So I have to kind of try and put myself in their frame of mind to understand exactly what he's saying here. Well, the same thing is true here only with Gentiles. This is a very much a Gentile-driven letter and a Christ-centered letter. And so he tells them, he tells us, Gentiles, as far as I know, all of us, not to live like the Gentiles. Not even that he says it. He says, I testify to you in the Lord. Or the NIV translates, so I tell you this and insist on it, in the Lord, no longer live like the Gentiles do. You might want to jot a little note in your margin, that what Paul is doing here as a Jewish rabbi turned apostle is he's using standard rabbinical shorthand, Jewish shorthand, where Gentile means heathen. Gentile literally means the nations. And in the Old Testament, when they talk about the nations, they're talking about all the, the kind of pagans, the heathen around them. Sometimes the King James will even translate this word, the heathen. And to them, to us, to the Gentiles, he says, you must abandon the lifestyle that is accepted and celebrated all around you. In your walk, you must walk away from it and not look back. And then he gives us four elements of heathen life, the lifestyle of the unbeliever, that we must leave behind forever. Four things to leave behind. Then he gives us three steps that every Christian must have taken and continue to take in order to walk worthy and no longer walk as the Gentiles. Now, I don't want to get into the numbers again, but I do. Four being the number of creation, right? So he's talking to these people living in this sin-cursed creation saying, look, this is the state in which we find things. You've got to be willing to walk away from it. You've got to be, able to be willing to reject what everyone else is saying. Well, everyone does this. Everyone believes this. What are you, weird? And be weird. Then three instructions for us. Three being the number of the Trinity, of perfect communion within the Godhead and between God and the Godhead. And so with these, these three instructions, he gives us a, a glimpse at how close our communion is with God in Christ. Add those two together, four and three, and you get... I got the same thing. Yes, seven. And that is the number of completion, perfection, the kind of maturity that he's just been describing has attained this way. And now may be a particularly good time to pay attention since we Gentiles find ourselves in exactly the same situation as those Gentiles living in a just spookily similar culture. So the first of these four Gentile heathen living aspects that must be rejected, abandoned, and left behind by every Christian is that they are futile in their thinking. And that word futile is a word that you've heard in the Old Testament. You remember there's this Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that the apostles seem to use and even quote in the New Testament. And when we look at that Greek translation, the word that he uses here for futile in their thinking is the word Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes over and over and over again when he says, this too is meaningless, meaningless. 
chase after the wind. He looks at his life just chasing after pleasure and riches, and he says in the King James, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's this word. Emptiness. Futile in their thinking, a meaningless thinking. And you say to yourself, wait a minute. There's smart people that aren't Christians. In fact, it seems like some of the smartest people are not. When we think about the, the Bill Gates and the, the Elon Musks or the Zuckerbergs or whoever that are, that are you know, kind of driving the engine forward with all their, their brain power, they don't tend to be believers. It's certainly not the way that Paul is describing here. Well, yeah, but the apostle's not referring to the ability to grasp higher mathematical theory or de- design a better aqueduct or smartwatch or something. He's talking exclusively about spiritual and moral issues, the things that make life either meaningless, meaningless to chase after the wind, or purposeful, purposeful. Christ is at the center. The unregenerate mind is man-centered, self-centered, me-centered. And that is a recipe for futility. Futility in thinking. Futility in living. The mind of the unregenerate is futile because it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It's like, hey, a sleek watch that has a whole bunch of little dials and a really nice band and it's powered by the sun, but it doesn't tell time. That would be pointless. The thing that a mind is supposed to do is to comprehend and perceive the truth. The the truth with a capital T. And yet we read in John chapter 1 that the light shined into the darkness when Christ came, but the darkness does not comprehend it. You know, the New Living Translation sometimes reaches a little far, goes a little loosey-goosey with some of the original text, but sometimes it just nails the sense of a verse. And I think this is one of the cases where it does. The New Living of verse 17 says, With the Lord's authority I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Hopelessly confused about what? About what is meaningful in life, about what the purpose of life is, about the things that matter the most. We think even of great men like Solomon, no Gentile, certainly, but he often chased after the same things the Gentiles chase after. Gentile becomes a moral category, not an ethnic one, as you read through the Bible. And Solomon tended that way often. That's what we read about in Ecclesiastes. That's how he got to meaningless, meaningless. And yet, when he sat down to write wisdom for his son... We read in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. That is a recipe for futile thinking. And this is far from the only time Paul brings this up. We read from Colossians earlier. Here, Romans chapter 1, when he's talking about not just Gentiles, but all of mankind. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And hey, that's exactly where he goes here as well. Number two thing that we must avoid that the Gentiles all around us are doing that we ourselves did in our Gentile past is to have darkened understanding. They are darkened in their understanding. It's like the lights are so low that they, they, they can do a lot of thinking with what they do see, but they can't quite grasp the, the state of the world, the state of the human heart, the point of it all. Calvin wrote of this blindness, that it's that which covers the minds of men. It is the punishment of original sin. Because Adam, after his revolt, was deprived of the true light of God, in the absence of which there is nothing but fearful darkness. And this is true 
Yet look back at that Romans 1.21 verse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So this is willful ignorance of God. This is willful hardness of heart. Not some poor, unfortunate situation in which these people find themselves, despite themselves, but rather they love the darkness, and so they withdraw into it. Ironically, in St. Paul's day and today alike, those who turn their backs on the knowledge of God consider themselves to be enlightened. In fact, look, historically, there's the Enlightenment, a time when the sovereignty of reason replaced the sovereignty of God in most people's minds. And yet we can see again and again how life without God is intellectually frustrating and meaningless, meaningless. Not just King Solomon, but every biopic about a super genius or preternaturally talented hedonist of some kind seems to end on the same note. And the greater the mind, the more obvious. Vanity of vanities. A chase after the wind. Their understanding is darkened. Compare this with the light that Paul says we can have in Jesus Back in Ephesians 1, 16 to 18. I do not cease to give thanks to you, rather, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Eyes opened. Light shining. That is what is offered to us. And you know, no no matter how bright the quote-unquote great thinkers of our day, apart from Christ, are, they often will see themselves as overcoming the ignorance of ages past in their enlightenment. And yet, look where Paul goes next. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. Paul is not afraid to not pull punches here. Number three, then. The third thing that we need to avoid. First, the futility of thinking. Second, the darkness of heart. Third, being alienated from the life of God because of ignorance in our minds and hardness in our hearts. Being separated from God, we could not even begin to understand the truth or even recognize it so that we could understand it. And this describes our entire existence before Christ got a hold of us. But it's also a very real danger for us now. Yes, nothing can ultimately separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That is true. But we can kind of darken our hearts in a way that is alienating temporarily. In, in walking like the Gentiles who close off their hearts to God, pull the drapes, board up the door, lest any light get in and illuminate what's going on in there. Even their consciences, which is, that's a gift of God in common grace to everyone, saved or unsaved alike. Even their consciences become seared. And that brings us to the fourth and final thing to be avoided. A calloused conscience. In verse 19, we read, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's a little bit difficult of a word to translate callous, 
Uh, it's, it's one that only occurs here in the New Testament, so we have to look elsewhere in, in Greek literature to find other examples of it. I think the King James is dead on when it says they are past feeling. I think the NIV is also dead on when it says having lost all sensitivity. The pin can be poked in, but they don't feel anything. Not that unbelievers aren't feeling or sensitive to anything or anyone, The apostle is saying they're not sensitive to the conviction of sin that comes through the word or even to the remains of the law written on their hearts that should push them to the foot of the cross. Now, woodenly, this word translated callous means not feeling pain. And it's easy to see how that would become the word for callous. No problem. You can see how that would evolve to mean in your inner being, not feeling any pain. If someone is intoxicated, you might describe them colloquially as, that guy's feeling no pain, which I would say is a very optimistic uh, interpretation of these events. Certainly doesn't mean that they're receiving no injury. Doesn't mean that they're sustaining no damage. The pain will be coming back with a vengeance. They're just putting it off. And the same is true of the Gentiles that we are not to emulate in our walk, in our life. This verb again, used only here, seems to have this force, to lose the capacity to feel shame. And that's important because our world today sees this as the ultimate goal. The culture that is all around us pushes this as the ultimate goal. Shame is never a good thing according to our culture, neither is guilt. Anything for which you feel shame, you should flip that around, ignore it, let that callus grow, and instead feel pride and a sense of self-expression, or I gotta be me, or this is just who I am. This reminds me an awful lot of the Christian science sect and Mary Baker Eddy's teaching that sin is an illusion, and so that the only real sin is believing in sin. And that's a, a kind of fringe group, but today that has gone mainstream as pop versions of it endorsed in books and on television programs, by America's darlings of the spiritual but not religious movement, Oprah, Rob Bell, Rhonda Byrne, continually promoted. It feels good to hear. If you think you're sinning and you feel some shame, there's no such thing as sin. So remember that. There is no spoon. Just let the callous grow. Well, what is the end result of this kind of calloused heart and shameless mind? Is it the freedom that its proponents promise? No, it's the very opposite. It's bondage. Is it the clear, enlightened understanding of the world? No, it's the opposite. It's a darkened understanding. Look around at our culture. You'll see even those who fall into this category and claim to to live and, and observe the world strictly by a scientific, atomistic worldview will abandon those principles. Even the most basic facts of anatomy, the most easily verifiable things, they'll throw them out if it gets in the way of licentious living. Now, before we get too far, I have to stop and say, yes, there is such a thing as common grace. We have to remember that, that that Paul even quotes Gentile or heathen poets. And not to say this is what not to do. This is a bad example. No, to kind of lead Gentiles toward the gospel because there's some truth in them. Yes, God has given us common grace. There is truth everywhere. When we forget that, you get into these kind of intellectual, spiritual ghettos where you say, I can't listen to any music that's quote-unquote secular, and I can't do anything, you know, I can't hang up a beautiful picture unless it has a Bible verse stamped on it or something. No, all truth is God's truth, all beauty is God's beauty, and there is truth all over, but not the whole truth. 
but in the gospel. It's the equivalent of a candle here or there or there in the darkness while the gospel is pulling down the blinds and letting the sunlight flood in and fill the room. So we read about these who have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Sensuality is a word that we use sometimes in, in our own lives. In our own, you know, you're talking about uh, rated R for sensuality or something, right? Here it doesn't mean exclusively sexual like it generally does when we use the word sensuality. It can refer to lustful pleasures of any kind, whether gluttony or greed and avarice, hatred, rage, selfish ambition, all the stuff we want to give ourselves licenses to do because it feels good in the moment knowing that in the long run it's poison but becoming more and more calloused to that alarm bell so that godless thoughts lead to godless actions, inevitably. And notice that reflexive pronoun there, having given themselves up to sensuality. This is something they've chosen. And they've, what they've chosen to do is rather than to spend their lives pursuing the purpose for which God created them to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, they've turned it back on itself living for their own gratification, their own glory, and the enjoyment of every carnal appetite. Again, we see this tension of our minds having been darkened from the outset by the fall and our own willful continued darkening of our minds and hardening of our hearts. You see it all as far back as Exodus when, when Pharaoh first hardens his own heart several times around, and then God says, okay, I'll harden your heart and make of you an example. Or what we read if we keep going in Romans 1, where we were a moment ago. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Those who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up into vile affections. God hands us over when we refuse to be sensitive in any way to the leading of the spirit to the conviction that comes he will hand over even an entire culture an entire people and say if you want to live in sin here's the end result well what we read also is they have become greedy to every kind of impurity to practice every kind of impurity this is not just greed as in wanting more and more riches or more and more honor but this is greed to practice each and every kind of godlessness like they're a kid collecting baseball cards and they want to you know have one of each that romans passage goes on this way they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Whoa! What happened to speak the truth in love last week? It sounds like Paul gets pretty harsh here. I think the answer is that, you know, if, if a doctor can't cure your condition, she might downplay its effect and emphasize how instead you can manage it, live with it. But Paul knows the cure to the state of mankind apart from Christ. He knows, and so he can describe its every miserable, deadly symptom in such unvarnished terms that maybe even the, the prick of that pin will be felt a little bit by the calloused heart 
with the Spirit giving it a little extra push. Just as these Gentile converts have been born again by the Spirit, working through the preaching of the Word. This is his goal in all of this. And that's where we go in verse 20. And it's always nice when these passages turn the corner and begin now to talk to us about life in the Spirit. That is not the way you learned Christ. Would you underline the word you there in your Bible because it is emphatic in the Greek. The best translation would emphasize that. It would say, but you, however, you did not learn Christ this way. Or, as for you, you did not learn Christ this way. This is not how you learned Christ. That's kind of an awkward sentence. We normally speak of learning a subject or a skill or a language, but not a person. You learned Christ, but it fits hand in glove with what we saw last week. That experiential, relational knowledge of Jesus Christ that brings maturity. To be a follower of Jesus means he's both the teacher and the subject, the lesson. Last week, we looked at the difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Here, we see the difference between learning Christ and learning about him. You could take a comparative religion class at any college anywhere, and you'd learn some stuff about Jesus Christ. But in a church, in a Christian home, among believers, we ought to be learning Christ himself, or the truth that is in Jesus, as he says here. That's the assumption Paul makes in verse 21, that you've learned Christ, that you've heard, that you've been taught. And what have they been taught? Well, this is the the second part. The three vital moves for every disciple. If it was clickbait, we'd say one weird trick, but it's the Bible. So it's three vital moves for every disciple. What you've done from the beginning and must not stop doing. First of all, put off the old self. Put off the old self. In the King James, it says the old man. It's the word anthropos. It means person. Let's put off the old person. Nothing against old people. We're talking about the old man, the old Adam, the old Eve, that unregenerate self that gave himself to sensuality and was greedy to practice impurity. Put that old Adam, that old Eve off. For Gentiles, this is described back in Ephesians 2. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Throw that off. Shrug it off like filthy garments that are too filthy to even be washed, but instead should be burned, or better yet, like clothes that are already on fire. Throw them off with that kind of of sense of insistence, that level of intensity, and let them burn. John MacArthur said this old self refers to the worn-out, useless, and unconverted sinful nature corrupted by deceit. Salvation is a spiritual union with Jesus Christ that is described as the death plus burial of the old self and the resurrection of the new self walking in newness of life. So I may as well tell you, I used this stuff last night. It was quite a process. It started with soaking your feet until they were like alligator skin. And then I put on the thing, I... I rubbed it on. It took forever. I think I smelled like the burning of my, my own flesh. And then I woke up this morning, and I said, how do my feet feel? Oh, kind of the same. I, 
I can't, I can't barely feel when I touch that same part of my heel or the side of my foot. And then I remembered that it said in the instructions, for really bad calluses, you might need multiple applications. And then I started thinking also, you know, even if it worked perfectly, it wouldn't be long before these calluses started reforming from the same thing, and you'd have to go back and you'd have to apply the stuff and, and, and get the pumice thing out and rub the, the skin all off once again and continue to put off the old calluses because calluses come back, and the same thing is true for believers as well. The enemy will try to give you a calloused heart regardless of how long or how closely you have been following Jesus. We see how little things will lead to bigger sins, and the longer we walk in them, and the longer we walk down these roads, the more calloused our hearts can become. We have to be aware of it. I read a study, no I didn't, I read an article about a study, I'm no doctor, in uh, the journal Nature Neuroscience, which showed how small lies lead to bigger ones. They actually put people in like an MRI and they instructed them on, on uh, this kind of back and forth, how they could tell lies and it would be advantageous for them. And they were just little stupid lies. But even with those, there was a, a thing that lit up in their brain, this emotional regret over telling the lie. And as they did it more, the lies got a little bigger. And even as the lies got bigger, the response got smaller because they were becoming, even in those few moments, calloused to the very activity. The head researcher said, think about it like perfume. You buy a new perfume and it smells strongly. A few days later, it smells less. And a month later, you don't smell it at all. As much as people want to mock the idea of a slippery slope as a fallacy, it's obviously something that we see happening in our world around us, in our own hearts. Or I've known of, of men who were family men, seemed like good men, and they get into a little pornography, and then they start to do a lot of the pornography, and then they stop feeling guilty about it, and what happens? It turns into seeing prostitutes, it turns into marriages falling apart, it turns into whole lives collapsing in. What happened in that process? They became desensitized to the Spirit's leading, desensitized, if they were outside of Christ, to even their conscience and the, the common grace law that's still hanging around there in their hearts. You can silence that voice. You can sear your conscience, and it is dangerous to do. But this is what God gives us, a removal of the callous. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, one that is feeling, one that is sensitive, one that hears the voice of God. So first, put off the old self. Second, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Notice this comes with the force of a command, but it's passive. It doesn't say renew yourself. It says be renewed. The assumption there, of course, is that, that God is the agent when that happens. We see the same thing in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the Holy Spirit doing the renewal, and yet somehow we are involved in inviting him into that work and partnering with him in that work. Or the command makes no sense. What's the spirit of your mind? People get really confused by that one. I've been taught that I have a mind, a spirit, and, and a body, but how does my mind also have a spirit? No, no, no. The word spirit here, it means that which animates. This has been well translated, I think, the attitude of your mind, or the thoughts and attitudes of your mind. 
That, that which animates your mind and kind of is under and beneath and, and, and giving life to your thoughts and your desires. Be renewed in that. No longer self-centered or man-centered. We become Christ-centered. We have an eternal perspective that short-circuits everything about the darkened thinking of the old self, the futile thinking. However, our vision can easily become dimmed. We can lose sight of that. So keep on putting off the old self. Keep on being renewed. And finally, keep on, the last in the list, putting on the new self. Created to be like God. To me, those are the most fascinating words in the whole text. Put on the new self, created to be like God. Remember in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image, created to be in the image of God. And then in Genesis 3, the serpent comes and says, oh, God said, don't eat the fruit. Oh, no, God did not truly say that. He knows if you eat the fruit, you will become like God. And they ate it and they fell and we turned away and the image of God was fractured within us and we turned our affections, our worship, our loyalty inward. But as new creations, we again have the opportunity to live in God's image. And the ironic thing is that God actually wants us to become like him and created us like him to be like God. The serpent so often uses good things to sell us sin we need to become more and more, especially like that perfect representation of God we see in Jesus Christ. So what does that look like to once again image God? Well, he gives us the answer right away. To live, quote, in true righteousness and holiness. Our culture wants to grow this spiritual callus so that it spreads over all mankind, hardening every human heart. And to do so, uses language like, be your truest self, or let your heart be your compass. Yeah, because I always want a compass that is actively deceitful and desperately wicked. Good idea. It's like, remember Dora the Explorer had that backpack talking to her? You want to have a compass that's like, hey, I hate you. Go this way, off the cliff. Or like when Michael Scott's car tried to drown him in a lake. We don't want to rely on these things. What does this look like? It looks like living in true righteousness and holiness. And for the one who's born again, we know that our truest self is the one created in God's image. The one that is pure and righteous and holy. Not following our own sensuality. Not greedy for every type of ungodliness. Not following our carnal desires, but following the word of God, our true compass. Not being conformed to the pattern of this world. The old Gentile thinking, the old heathen thinking was rooted in a depraved mind, a corrupt spirit, darkened understanding, and a calloused heart. All of these things have to be burned off. You don't need to mess around with this stuff. The spirit will do it for you. As you say to him, take away everything in me that is rooted in the old self. I'm willing to give it up. I want it to be burned off. And, and I don't want seven or eight minutes. I don't want seven or eight hours. I want a lifetime of you just sloughing off the callus, taking away all that would separate me from you, all that would darken my heart, all that would make my thinking futile, and help me to put on the new self day after day. Malachi referenced this very thing I bought on Amazon when he said that God is like a refining fire and fuller's soap. 
Fuller's soap was stuff that was used by people who prepared the wool to make it into a usable fabric and things. And they used such chemical, harsh stuff that no one wanted to be near them. And they actually had kind of a lower life expectancy. It was bad news to be a fuller in those days because it was so hardcore. It burned and burned and burned things away. God is like a refining fire in fuller's soap, but all he will burn away is the dross and leave us Christ-like and satisfied in him. We need to fight then to become what we already are. There's that already not yet tension of all good theology. And this starts in our thinking, as Paul points out over and over again in this text. We snuff out corrupt thoughts, those things that place our comfort, our pride, our fleshly gratification at the center of our lives and embrace the renewing of our minds. Remember in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Taking every thought captive. The old self was taken captive by every little thought and jerked around by every fleshly appetite. But now that our bondage is broken, we can flip that on its back and say, no, every thought will be taken captive unto the obedience in Christ. And our renewed thinking will lead to godly living. Just as surely as godless thinking leads to godless living. If we had to boil this down to just a few words, I would say this passage is about forsaking sin and seeking holiness. And both are equally important. You can overemphasize either. I know a lot of people trying to establish a lot of good and positive habits, even rooting them in the scripture without burning off the calluses. And that is foolish. Without saying, I'm going to take off the old self, I'll just put on over top. What do you wind up with then? Something real nice and righteous looking on the outside and filthy on the inside, which is exactly how Jesus described the Pharisees. The inside of the bowl is full of dead men's bones. No, we don't want that. It's like if you buy a house and you look in the backyard and there's a beautiful garden and you go, that is such a gorgeous garden. I don't want to change it at all. I'm not going to touch it. I'll just let it thrive. The rain will come down and everything there will keep growing and it'll be wonderful. Ten years later, what do you have? A jungle, a disaster. You got to get out there and pull out the weeds. And you got to fertilize the things that you want to see grow. And if we don't weed, we'll be overrun with oh, weeds. It shouldn't be surprising. And as that happens in our hearts, that's when the callus begins to grow. But the opposite error is equally foolish. Saying, I'm going to pull up and pull up the weeds. I'm going to take off the old self without any emphasis on putting on the new. I've, I've seen that up close and personal. Rules, rules, rules. Churches that say, this is how we live, this is what we do, this is what we don't do, especially. You're the worst. Even in Christ? Yeah, kind of. Now, for nine years, I went to Cornerstone University. Four years for my undergrad, five years uh, for graduate school, for seminary. And so in nine years of work and many, many, many tuition dollars, I made it 150 yards. Hooray for me. Uh, but... What was wild was to watch this school slowly transform from an overemphasis on putting off to instead embracing both aspects. Ironically, this school with a rather fundamentalist Baptist background had been inadvertently advocating something of a spiritual nudist worldview. Put off, put off, put off, put off the old self, the old filthy garment. Even where those hemlines had to be three Bible spines beneath the knee, Everyone was encouraged to just keep on. I mean, the, the logo and the slogan for the church was Latin for woohoo, take it off. I'm not kidding. 
It wasn't, that, I, that's not true. No, take off, be renewed, and put on the new. Don't just say to yourself, okay, have I stumped out the sin, but say, are my appetites now for the things of God? Have I put on the new self? Is my mind being renewed? We need to rediscover the gospel as the center of all this. Not all the other stuff people want to use to sell you books and stuff. Not all the other... Listen, we're in the middle of, of, of kind of a deadlock of the church trying to decide how do we deal with the world around us. And there's so many different ideas. How can I impact the world? Yeah, it's great that you're talking about what I do with me, right? I put off the old, I renew my mind, I put on the new. But what about the fact that we're commanded to have an impact on the world? We need to rediscover the gospel there as well. Try debating right and wrong with the world. It's a losing prospect. Because according to Ephesians 4, the root of the world's wickedness is a corrupt mind and darkened understanding. You can talk to your blue in the face, you're not going to come to a meeting of the minds. And I'm going to lose it if I see one more Christian trying to fix the world's problems of idolatry and social corruption and, and injustice and decay with political arguments or clever philosophical rants. Be like standing in a dark room saying, hey, check out all these charts and graphs I made to show you the truth. Yeah, you first you have to turn the light on before you can do something like that. And the gospel, when it is preached, even to those who don't receive it, even among large groups of those who don't receive it, has a leavening effect far beyond those who become followers of Jesus Christ and has for all of church history, spilling over into the culture. You want to shine some light into the darkness? Start by proclaiming the gospel. And then you've got to back that up and show that it's real, not just by talking the talk of maturity, but by living a life of godliness, putting off the old self, being renewed in mind, putting on the new, avoiding futile thinking, darkened understanding, and all the rest. We follow Jesus. We follow him not just with our lips and our mouths, not just with our minds, but with our whole lives. And proclaiming the gospel is the center of all of that. I think we'll leave it there for this week, and uh, we'll be back with Paul in Ephesians in a couple weeks. For now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words that we read about where we would be as Gentiles if not for what Jesus did. We are so thankful. We are so humbled. How is it that you would take those who were content to be separated from you, who chose darkness instead of light, who want futile thinking and come and suffer and die and save us? It makes no sense to us, Lord. But we thank you for it. We praise you for it. And we pray that we would never take it for granted that we would continue to ask you to remove all that is the old self, especially the callous around our hearts when we begin to become insensitive to the leading of the Spirit and the conviction of sin. When we look around and say, ah, all the Gentiles are doing it. No big deal. Lord, we pray that the pin of your Holy Spirit would go deep enough into our heart to penetrate that callous, to wake us up, to bring us back to you, to the cross, to forgiveness, to wholeness, to renewal. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.